Elsa from Frozen is a theologian. Uh, what do I mean? One of the big issues in our uh, culture today is freedom. Uh, the right to self-expression is probably the most important thing for lots of people, isn't it? And one song that Elsa sings in the film, it's been a while since I watched it, but here, here it is. No right, no wrong, she sings. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Maybe tonight your tastes are a bit more sophisticated. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The song, the poem, they're, they're saying the same thing, aren't they? To be free, to be ourselves, to follow our heart. And this is the air that we breathe. And I don't want to completely dismiss that, actually. Uh, because many people have commented that uh, recently that one of the reasons people today think like that is because they live in a culture that is influenced by Christianity. Uh, the Bible affirms our individuality. The Bible says that every single person matters. The Bible says that we're uh, made in God's image. And so we've got great freedom, great dignity as people. And one example of this is our confession of faith. Westminster Confession, it speaks about what's called the liberty of conscience. And what that means is that unless something is a matter of sin, well, Christians are free to make decisions for themselves, to make free choices. The Christian take on freedom is nuanced. It is different to and better than the way that our culture thinks about freedom. And above all, of course, you and I were to use our freedom to serve God and others. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, why all that uh, by way of introduction? Well, simply to say that our passage tonight, it's all about freedom. It's about freedom from slavery and yet it's also about freedom for God. Uh, this passage is about those two big things. Those are my headings this evening. It's about God's commitment to releasing his people from slavery. And yet it's also about the commitment they make to him in response. And hopefully if you look at the passage, you can see something of that. Verse uh, 30 or 31 to 42 uh, they describe the, the great escape, if you like. They describe the rescue. Well, verse 43 to the end of our reading, chapter 13, verse 16, they show us three ways that that rescue was to be remembered. And so tonight, as we come to our first heading, here it is. It's just very simple. Free from slavery. Free from slavery. And every Christian can say that. And every one of these people in this story could say that too. We saw last time that the plagues, they were like strikes on Pharaoh in Egypt. Nine strikes and then a knockout, the death of the firstborn. And we read in our passage, a great cry went up in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Verse uh, 30. This cry, if you like, is a kind of trigger that then leads to the exodus. What we need to realize is all of this was according to God's 
plan. He had promised redemption, and then it had happened. In fact, God had even predicted, God had promised, if you like, this cry. Look back at chapter 11 and look at uh, verse 6. Moses announces uh, the final great plague, and he says this, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. And when that cry came, it was, it was evidence that God had kept his word. But in fact, God had lit the fuse, if you like. God had lit the fuse long in advance. Just listen to Genesis chapter 15. God is not speaking to Jacob here or Isaac here. He's speaking to Abram. And he says this, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own that they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. God says, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. It's exactly what happens, isn't it? When we come to this part of Scripture, we're really being told that God has kept his word. But that's not the only thing God has done, is it? God has grown his people. See, as they leave... Egypt, uh, the men alone, they number 600,000, verse 37. And if you add in uh, the women and the children, uh, many have estimated probably, I don't know, about one and a half million people. And then you remember the very, very first two verses of this book. Just listen. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. 70 persons, 70 to 1.5 million. What does that teach us? It teaches us that God is at work, isn't he, in the very bleakest kind of conditions. God is growing his people when all that seems to be happening to his people is slavery and oppression and opposition. I want to do tonight is I want us, as we think about this rescue, I want us to look at the responses to it. I want us to look at how uh, Pharaoh responds and then how the Egyptians respond. Firstly, Pharaoh, look at what happens in verse 31. He summons Moses and Aaron. He says, up, go out, go out from among my people, go see the Lord. And what's really going on here? Well, one author says that uh, Pharaoh here, he's, he's a man who still thinks he's in charge. And his power is coming to an end. His people have been decimated. His gods have been defeated. His firstborn son is dead. And yet he's still issuing orders. He's issuing empty orders. He's doing what God wants. And this is how some leaders behave, isn't it? Isn't it? They act like they're in control when they've lost control. See, what did you think of the end of verse 32? Look what he uh, says. He says, take your flocks and herds and be gone. And then he says, and bless me also. And it's quite strange, isn't it? And is that superstition? You know, did uh, Pharaoh just think, well, this this God these people serve is clearly really powerful. Um, 
but uh, you know I can get rid of them now and and yeah I'll take a bit of their blessing if I can get it his blessing maybe and I think it's more likely that Pharaoh is really revealing his heart here see Pharaoh is not taking God seriously is he Still unwilling to bend the knee, still unwilling to turn to God himself. He's not repenting here, is he? And he says, you do it for me. You get some of God's blessing for me. And he reminds me of, it reminds me of the story of Jesus that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe you remember it. Even when the rich man is in Hades, even when he's suffering, He asks for the beggar to come and do his bidding, doesn't he? Send Lazarus, he says, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's issuing orders, thinks he's in charge, and yet he's not. Pharaoh is like that. Pharaoh is a leader here who's losing his grip on reality. What about the Egyptians? Well, they want Israel out. Verse 33, they're, they're urgent with the people. They're frightened. And it's absolutely no surprise, is it? Think what they've been through. Think of the plagues. Think of the suffering. I think these people recognize something of God's power. And so God's people, they leave in haste. They're, they're thrust out of Egypt. Verse 39. Yeah, they don't have time to prepare their food. And yet their arms are full of uh, plunder. And Pharaoh, the Egyptians. Well, what about us? How do you and I, what do we uh, think about this passage? How do we respond to this rescue? Uh, last Sunday afternoon, uh, we had at our house a bit of a family get-together. We had uh, you know, my parents, my two brothers, uh, their families. Uh, there were 16 of us having lunch together. And then at the end, about half past four, uh, as everyone started to get uh, really tired, we thought we need to do a big family photograph. Uh, it's the first time in a while we'd all been together. We've got to, we've got to have a family photo. And it had stopped raining. And so we all went outside uh, and we, and Marianne went and asked one of our neighbors, Scott, to come and take the photograph and trying to cajole uh, tired kids who've had quite a lot of sugar and all that kind of thing, trying to get them to kind of stand in the right place and look at the camera. We just about, just about got it. Well, I once heard someone say that reading the Old Testament, it's like looking at our family photo album. And you and I, we're God's covenant people, and Scripture is full of pictures, it's full of photos, if you like, of all the big events, all the family gatherings, all the family members, uh, people that you and I, as Christians, belong to. And this story, this Exodus, is one of them. And it's our story. You and I, we've been grafted into God's family, that's what Paul says in Romans, isn't it? And yet, in a sense, it's even more than that. Because this story, this family picture, it's not just an event that you and I can look back on and and learn from and think that was nice for them. It's not just part of our family history as Christians. What happened in this exodus is exactly the same as what happened to us, isn't it, as Christians? 
See, if you're a Christian tonight, what can you say? You can say, I was a slave. And yet you'll also add, I was a willing slave. I was a slave to sin. I was someone who was under a sentence of death. But God provided a lamb. And the blood of that lamb covered my sin. God has set me free. See, Jesus is a liberator. Jesus is a liberator. I wonder if you ever think of him that way. We often speak, don't we, about Jesus being our shepherd. We love that picture. We speak of him as our prophet, our priest, our king, our savior. But Jesus is also our liberator. Jesus is the one who has set us free. See, what words did Jesus quote in Luke when he began his ministry? He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. What does that chapter say? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so the Christian, to be a Christian is to be a free man, a free woman. To be a Christian is to be someone who has been saved from or set free from the, the power and the, the penalty of sin. To be a Christian is to know that one day we'll be set free from the presence of sin too. A Christian is a free person. There is, there is no more debt to be paid. There's no more punishment that needs to be endured. The, the chains are gone. And so tonight, if you're a Christian, you can say, I have a home, I have a father, and I am free from slavery. Free from slavery. But that's not the only thing we see in this passage. We also see that we're to be free for God, free from slavery, but also free for God. And if verses 30 to, to 42, there are an account of the Exodus, uh, the remaining verses, there are a description of how that event was to be remembered. Verses 30 to 42 are about God's commitment. Well, these verses, they describe our commitment and response. And what happened in Egypt, what happened in Egypt was to reverberate down the generations. It was an event God's people were to always remember. They were always to kind of reenact these moments. And before we get into some of the details, let me show you something that I think uh, points to this. Look at chapter 13, just scan uh, through it with me, and look at the references to hands, hands. Maybe you can see the first one, verse uh, three, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out. And if uh, if you look down, you can uh, see the, the same kind of language at the end of verse nine and then uh, verse 14 and then verse 16. When God rescued Israel, he did it by his own hand. He did it all by himself. But look at verse 9 again. Look at the start of it. It, that is the festival, the feast of unleavened bread, it shall be a, to you a sign on your hand. 
and as a memorial between your eyes. Or verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand. So it's God's hand and your hand. Now, uh, in the Rugby World Cup uh, final last night, some of the players, if you were watching it, you'll have seen they had uh, little kind of uh, wristbands and there's little messages uh, written on them, that kind of thing. I don't know, tactics, uh, that kind of thing, instructions. And I don't think this means that uh, God's people were to literally draw on their hands. But what God has done was to be as close to them as their own hand, as their own eyes. They were to remember their redemption. They were to mark it, verse 14, so that when in time to come their children asked what they, uh, they asked about it, they would be told. This, by the way, is why we bring the older children in for the Lord's Supper. This is why we have baptisms, as Andy did this morning, before they go out. Because we want to, them to see these things. We want them to ask questions about these things. Now look at the three different examples with me. The first is the Passover, verse uh, 43 to 50. And what we have here in this uh, little account, it builds on what God had said uh, earlier in the chapter. The focus is not so much <coughs> on what's eaten, but who's eating. Maybe you can see that as you look down. No foreigner shall eat of it, verse 43. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. It is to be eaten in one house verse 46 all the congregation of Israel shall keep it if a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the, over of the Lord let all his males be circumcised now what the Lord is underlining uh, here is the distinctiveness of the covenant community now this rescue is so big this meal is so important. This is not just a meal for anyone. This is a meal for God's people. And yet, listen to uh, the American pastor, listen to uh, Phil Riken, what he says. He says, this was not a matter of race, but of grace. These outsiders, these people had not yet put their faith in the God of Israel. And yet there was a way that these people could participate. If they were willing to receive the sign of the covenant, well, they could become as natives, verse 48. They could come to enjoy the privilege of being part of God's people. And friends, this is how it has always been. This is the principle God laid out in his covenant with Abraham. Circumcision was the sign of belonging. And it's the same with the Lord's Supper today. You and I, we, we remember Christ's death. And yet as we do that, we're called to not to eat it in an unworthy manner, aren't we? If we're not trusting Christ, we're not to eat it. And yet the opportunity to come to Jesus, to come to the table, it's always available. All people, everyone called to repent and believe. You know that's true tonight. Maybe you've 
you've always viewed yourself as an outsider. Maybe tonight you've never felt like you really belong anywhere. Well, the message of the gospel is simple. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your background, you can become part of God's family. All you have to do is ask Jesus to be your lamb to pay for your sin. That's not all we we see here. We'll come back to the the consecration of the firstborn later, but the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, I think this shows us a second aspect of this uh, remembrance. Someone has said the day that God rescued his people was so big, so important, that it required a week of commemoration every year. And if you look down, you can see that this special uh, day, this special week, it meant the special diet. It meant bread without leaven. And maybe you wonder why that is. Well, I've, I've never made uh, bread in my life. Confession time. But I know what leaven does. I know what yeast does. Yeast causes bread to rise, doesn't it? You don't need much of it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And for the duration of this feast, God's people, they were to to eat bread without leaven. As verse 7 puts it, no leaven was even to be seen with God's people. This was a reminder that they had had to leave Egypt in a hurry. They had not had time to, to bake proper bread. And unleavened bread... Unleavened bread became a kind of ongoing illustration to them of turning away from Egypt, turning away from slavery, turning away from their past life. And this is why Paul will bring up bread, of all things, unleavened bread in the New Testament when he addresses a serious sin in the life of the church. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Do that so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See, what's he saying? He's saying Christians are new people. Christians are people who have been set free from slavery. Christians are people who've been saved for God. And that's true of you tonight if you're following him. You belong to Jesus. He's rescued you. And so he calls you to live a new life with his help and his strength. He calls you to turn your back again and again on your old life. He says you've been bought with a price. And he says you're to honor God. We're to honor God with our bodies. He wants you and I to live lives of holiness. He wants us to dedicate ourselves to him. And that takes us to the the final festival, the consecration of the firstborn. Maybe you can see as you look down that instructions about this uh, act of commitment, this uh, remembrance are given in verses 1 and 2. And then later on in uh, verses 11 to 16. And as chapter 13 begins, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me 
all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. That word consecrate, it means dedicate, it means sanctify or, or separate. But I think the very last word of verse 2, it really helps us to understand it. Look at it with me. What did God say of the particular child or the particular animal? He said, mine, mine. And this is really striking because someone has said that firstborn sons in that culture at that time, firstborn sons, they signified the center and the future of the family. And so by being willing to dedicate them to God, well, what were those people doing? They were showing that he was the one in charge of their future. It was to be a reminder, true, that that life itself came from God, came from him. And yet, as you look down, as you look at verses 11 to 16, if you look at the further instruction that's given, it becomes clear that firstborn sons, they're not simply to be consecrated. No, they're to be redeemed. Look at verse 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Where was that redemption needed? Well, what becomes clear as you read on through the Pentateuch is that firstborn animals were to be sacrificed. Firstborn animals were to be given to God as as offerings. Donkeys were unclean. They could be redeemed by a lamb. See that in verse 13. And firstborn sons were in the same category. I laughed a little bit. This week when I thought of that uh, comparison, firstborn sons and donkeys, and I thought of uh, our firstborn son and the amount of kicking and jumping around he does. Well, like these donkeys, they were to be ransomed from death. They were to be ransomed from death by the death of another. And every time a firstborn son was born, there had to be a death. Think what that uh, ritual would have done to God's people, to the, the community as a whole. It would have reminded them, wouldn't it, again and again and again of the Passover. It would have reminded them of the reality of their sin. It would have reminded them of their need for a substitute. And friends, this is what we are reminded of when we participate in the Lord's Supper. As you and I, as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine, we remember the cost of our redemption. We remember that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom. And such love is so amazing It's so divine, it requires a response. Calls for a response. You and I, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that means he demands our life, our soul, our all. The Christian is someone who who knows what true freedom feels like. And it doesn't mean being free to do whatever we want. No, true freedom 
is knowing and loving and serving and belonging to the one who made me, the one who loved me, the one who gave himself for me. And the paradox at the heart of the Christian life is that I am never more truly myself than when I am truly his. That I am never more free than when I am his captive. That's why Christians sing, isn't it? Make me a captive, Lord. The man who wrote the hymn that we're about to sing, he, he understood this paradox. He was a, a slave ship captain and he became a slave of Christ. And his name was John Newton. And he once said, my memory's nearly gone, but I know two things. I'm a great sinner, and yet Christ is a great, great savior. He once said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I wonder if you can say that. I wonder tonight if you know the one who became like a slave for you. His name is Jesus. And so tonight, rest in him. <clears throat> Trust him. Follow him. And let him remove that shame.